so we're going to start. Grace is going to give us some background. Then she and I are going to do a little Q&A um, to tease out these the various complex threads of what she's going to lay out for us. And then we'll open it up for discussion. Um, great. Um, Is it working? Is right. it working? It's for the webcast. Oh, okay. Oh, cool. Right. Okay. <laughs> so um, we are going to talk about um, technology and elections in Kenya. Uh, if you check out the internet, you get all these uh, images about Kenya. You'd think everybody's tall, uh, man jumping, and we have a lot of animals. But if you look at um, this little picture on the right, it shows you people queuing during the voting day because people take elections so seriously and you know some of them woke up at 3 a.m. just to vote. And um, so Kenya is a beautiful country with difficult politics. We've had seven presidential elections since independence, which we got from the British in 1963. Um, all but one of these elections have been contested, I mean disputed, the results have been disputed. And in 2007, we had the worst um, dispute and we had post-election violence where over 1,000 people lost their lives and thousands more were displaced. This led to a reform where we have a new constitution. And then in um, 2013, we had elections, the first elections under the new constitution, where interestingly and amazingly, uh, we voted in to ICC, ICC being the International Criminal Court, to ICC indictees and they, were, they had been charged with um, mass atrocities and um, we voted them in. And between 2013 and 2017, we were just on campaign mode and um, we never really had a governance period. We just kept on um, discussing issues and in 2017, by the time we were having elections, issues of uh, corruption, historical injustices, equity, we had massive strikes, and these were all the issues that were in discussion. And um, the election, which was nullified, had two aspects of technology. On the one hand, we had certain aspects of the election being carried out using technology. For example, we had uh, biometric voter registration and biometric voter identification. We also had a results transmission system that depended on um, the internet, 3G, um, to transmit results from the local areas to the national tallying center in Nairobi. And then um, now, as I'd said earlier, the results, the presidential results were canceled. We're going to have repeat elections on October 26th. And one of the key issues in contention right now is whether we're going to use um, the same results transmission system. Um, then another aspect of technology is that uh, for the politics itself, for issues like campaigning, there was a lot of use of technology, uh, especially social media. Uh, WTF is WhatsApp, Twitter, and Facebook. <laughs> and <laughs> and um, <laughs> there was positive use. For example, uh, most people <laughs> access the voter register, uh, which is a big deal. Uh, uh, because part of the issues in elections are always about uh, integrity, uh, whether dead people voted and so on and so forth. So this was accessed using um, uh, the internet and social media. 
And then on the other hand, we had uh, negative views. For example, uh, the internet was, and, and WhatsApp was awash with fake news, propaganda, negative campaigning. And um, the response from the government was to try and regulate uh, social media. We had regulations that um, went as far as uh, creating liability for WhatsApp admins. I, I don't know how many of you use uh, WhatsApp and understand the dynamics of WhatsApp. It, it's really big in Kenya. Like Everybody I know is in a family WhatsApp group, a neighborhood WhatsApp group, a local area WhatsApp group. And um, so what happens is in these groups is that there's a lot of trust. And if you get um, fake news coming in through WhatsApp, you are more likely to trust that news than a Facebook post. And um, another response by the government has been massive surveillance. Um, we are among African countries that have spent a significant um, amount of our local budget on um, surveillance equipment and technologies. These are just examples of some of these um, fake news and disinformation. On August uh, 2nd, which was a few days to the elections, if you searched for Raila from Kenya, the top, um, the top uh, result would be 12 reasons never to trust Raila, and it would take you to this website called therealraila.com. Of course, that was a paid ad. Um, if you searched for Uhuru Kenyatta, sorry, Raila and Uhuru Kenyatta were the two top uh, contenders in this uh, election. If you search for Uhuru Kenyatta, who's the incumbent, you'll get all these um, really nice, um, positive stories about him. And um, this was um, spreading on WhatsApp. And um, this website received a lot of hits um, on being put up, which is really weird, because people use prepaid internet bundles to surf the internet. And it's really expensive to, um, to watch videos. but there were still a lot of hits. Um, and this was, a, if you searched uh, from Icon Who Is to query uh, who owns the website, it was uh, private. Um, interestingly, it was the website is owned by the same people who own another website called Uhuru For Us. Um, so the consequences of uh, how we used the internet uh, for elections is that it's increase the polarization in the country, um, and of course increase the policing of the internet. And a lot of vocal people uh, no longer feel as uh, liberal <coughs> and secure online as they did before. But there was also a lot, of, a lot more uh, political discourse. Uh, people um, were able to look at um, issues of truth and reconciliation, which is a process that Kenya was supposed to be undertaking, but we have never quite, um, you know, sat to discuss historical injustices and other problems in the country. And you could actually say that our response, the citizens' response to misinformation and fake news and all that body of information could be directly um, showing that we are reaping the dividends of early adoption of technology because, as many of you are aware, Kenya was among the first African nations to adopt technology. We have um, four or five huge fiber optic cables. We have a vibrant um, innovation and um, technology culture. And so we had a lot of interesting local solutions in uh, fact-finding. And um, they were also able to create their own um, content and spread it using the same 
social media, uh, WhatsApp, Twitter, and Facebook. The only um, interesting thing is that generally there is such a miscomprehension of the Kenyan political scene, in my view, and this can be seen from how the observers, especially the international community, was really quick to uh, <coughs> urge everybody to accept the results of the election. And there was a, an editorial in the New York Times on um, August 13th that, you know, um, painted candidates in very uh, bad light. And it turned out that when these matters were taken to court, um, the election was nullified. So beyond just looking at the process of voting, you know, the picture I showed you where there are all these uh, people who woke up early to vote, and the, there's, a, there's a question of how observers um, uh, uh, carry out the whole process and uh, understanding even uh, questions as why are there such st high stakes in, in African elections? Why is it such a, a do or, or die matter? And why did, for example, um, fake news uh, take a different, um, why was it so different in Africa or in Kenya compared to maybe um, the US or uh, Britain during uh, Brexit? So I'm also part of an election observation team and currently um, everybody who's uh, in, in, in the election sector is working towards building more trust in technology because we believe that technology <coughs> helps a lot in um, making voting more efficient. And uh, like if you don't take too much time announcing results, it's, it's also good for, for the country because we can quickly go back to our normal activities because elections almost um, stop everything. So in a nutshell, that is uh, the background of uh, Kenya and elections, technology and elections in Kenya. Um, so, I wanted to, you mentioned at the very end that you were part of, you were an election observer, and I think it would be really great to hear a little bit about what that's like and who was observing this election. What were the, because I know there were different groups and representatives, and um, so what, what was that landscape, and then what, if you could tell us a little bit about your own experience. Um, so, a lot of international community, the European Union has a big mission every time Kenya has elections. And um, they have, um, they come to observe the election before, during, and a little after. If there's no violence, they don't leave immediately. If there's violence, they leave the country immediately. And then there are also uh, observers from the Africa Union and, uh, and COMESA. Uh, and the COMESA is the common market for East and uh, Southern Africa. Sorry. <laughs> and then there's, there's also another, um, there's always an observation mission from the US from these foundations that are uh, affiliated with um, political uh, think tanks like the National Democratic Institute. The Carter Center had uh, an observation mission that was really highlighted because it was led by John Kerry, who was a former Secretary of State and who's uh, also lost elections. and. <laughs> in the <past>. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and so um, there are also local observer missions, but because of our uh, internal problems uh, with eth ethnicity and politics, 
uh, people put a lot more trust normally in the international uh, observer missions. And for example, in 2007, before observers could give a go ahead, I mean, could give a, a, a clean bill of health and say that the elections were okay, like nobody could accept those uh, results. So um, this is the, the this, this is, there's always a big deal about uh, observers. Uh, but this time round, um, like in many other places in Africa, they seemed to have uh, missed the mark. And what about your experience? So my organization is called the Kenya ICT Action Network. We were observing uh, tech deployment. Um, we observed uh, how the technology was procured, uh, which was very problematic because um, the commission, which runs the electoral management body, was only put in place uh, six months before the election. And uh, they were the ones to start the procuring uh, process. Um, we gave input into, um, into the process. One of the big issues at the time of procurement was that the whole country was not uh, covered by uh, mobile networks. And um, it became a big deal about how uh, companies pay in, uh, some money into a universal access fund. And there's a lot of money that was sitting in the Universal Access Fund, but this, uh, these places in the country had never been um, covered by even 2G technology. So one of the uh, uh, big recommendations at that time was to try and find a way to cover these places. And um, a lot was done to try and cover these places. Um, later on, uh, issues changed to um, who would have access to this uh, to the back end of um, of this technology, and this became such a big issue because in the end, uh, during results transmission, the big big issue was that the opposition claimed that the the system had been hacked, and um, up to now, uh, as we prepare for uh, October twenty sixth, this is still the issue: who will have access to to this technology and. You know, there have been all sorts of uh, recommendations, people asking for the UN to come and um, have access to this part of the technology because we don't trust ourselves. And um, well, in the end, um, it's, it's, it's going to be up to, um, you know, experts and um, maybe political parties, like a, a representative group to, to um, have at least um, observer access to this technologies just to uh, build trust within the society that um, the technology will not create uh, or change the will of the people which is expressed during voting yeah there was I wanted to ask if you could just also say a little bit about there was one particularly violent incident what about eight days before the election yeah um, so uh, the way the law is made and the framework uh, the person who was ICT director at the electoral management body uh, would have, uh, you know, like super access to the to the back end, to the servers and everything. And eight days before the election, uh, among all the drama that was happening, like the the ICT director of elections was found dead, Ooh. and you know his hand was missing, and later found, and so on and so forth. And it was. Um, 
really um, uh, a, a big concern. Of course, now the issue is under investigation, but the fact that uh, technology is taken as such a big piece in the whole electoral process and that this has had such high stakes election that somebody could lose their life uh, because of, uh, uh, because of uh, their job is really uh, interesting. And later on, when um, the Supreme Court was um, ordered uh, a, a, a review of, of, of the server logs and all that, uh, I, I mean, these WhatsApp groups where tech is living, and most of the techies who are really good database administrators uh, were like, there is no way I would um, go to court to give uh, evidence about these issues because I'm a young person, I have a family, um, let me stay alive. So, yeah. What do you think were, in the, the court's decision, um, what did they say were the sort of biggest reasons that they, um, nullified the results? Um, so the main issue the court said that there were so many things that were irregular mm. that you could not trust the results. Um, at, the, at the core of the petition was the claim that um, the technology had been hacked, the results transmission system had been hacked, and there was an <coughs> algorithm that was um, that was increasing numbers for you know the leading candidate and keeping him in a lead, and so the court's uh, uh, the court's first uh, response in a very limited time was there are uh, paper backups to all these results, so can we have a look at all the paper backups? And it's in looking at this uh, paper uh, paper forms that um, uh, the court found that there were so many um, irregular things about the the paper forms that these results could not really uh, be trusted as the real expression of, of, of the will of the people. Mm. Yeah. So I'm wondering, a lot of times when we talk about technology and elections in various contexts, there's this kind of question about the benefits versus the risks. And I wondered, I mean, you addressed this a little bit in, your, in the beginning, but I wondered if you could just break down a little bit in a little more detail for us when you think about fundamental rights, um, what are the risks posed by using a system like this? And, and, and extending it to thinking about the um, use of biometric identification. Um, it's, it's, it's really a huge risk, and considering that uh, Kenya does not have a data protection uh, framework, in the new constitution, which is really um, like one of the most amazing constitutions in the world, there is a, a right to protection of privacy. Uh, however, we haven't uh, effected this through like enabling legislation. So the, one of the big problems, um, even um, when the electoral management body um, published the database of uh, voters, was that they, pu they published too much information. They published people's identity card numbers, um, and so on and so forth. And um, well, it's, it, it's really uh, a delicate balance. On the one hand, it really matters to people to see that voter register and verify that it's a clean register without you know, dead people or you know, fake people or whatever. But on the other hand, 
it, we, are, we are getting more and more into um, having digital profiles. Um, as I showed you, like we are an African country where uh, uh, data mining and analytic companies can comfortably um, sell their business to governments. So um, finding this uh, balance between um, access to information and uh, privacy and, and data protection is, is really a delicate one. Um, but this is something that we can work out if we um, come together and uh, create a data protection framework that not only protects us from uh, companies, but also protects us from um, our own governments. Uh, we had this situation where in, uh, earlier in the year, um, during voter registration, um, local government uh, administrators would walk around with uh, names, uh, identity card numbers of people and phone numbers and call these people and uh, remind them to go and vote. And this was really shocking. Like, um, this information is information only available to government and government decides to use, um, you know, this information towards its own, um, towards its own uh, ends. So. Uh, we need uh, we need to lead Africa in getting data protection uh, laws that protect the people not only from from um, companies but also from their own government's uh, use of data. Is there evidence that that kind of data was also used in other ways? Thinking about media and um, social media and WhatsApp and all these different ways that communication was happening around and approaching the election, that that might have been an additional factor that if you were trying to influence a specific group or target specific interests, that that, that type of data might have been helpful? Um, for sure. Um, I know a lot of people. I also got a lot of um, targeted messages from local uh, candidates, because we had six elections from local candidates, you know, uh, reminding me to go vote for them, reminding me of their, their policies and whatever. So for sure, there was a way that um, people could tell, or the, the political class especially, could tell who were their constituents and link this to their phone numbers and have uh, very targeted uh, messaging to them. For sure, there was a way. And there's a need for uh, going back to the bigger picture in understanding the political context. There's a need for more uh, research into uh, how, for example, uh, personal data was obtained, from whom did this data come, and um, so that we can, we can, we can come up with uh, solutions that uh, protect uh, private uh, information. Could you talk a little bit about the role of private technology companies in this milieu? Oh. There's a few different ones. There's a Cambridge yeah. Analytica question, yeah. and yeah. then, uh, so maybe we could start there and then move over to our WTF <laughs> friends. <laughs> so uh, Cambridge Analytica um, uh, did uh, a lot of the communications part for the Jubilee uh, party. Um, it, at first, they denied that they were in the country, but it was later um, uh, proved through investigative journalism that they were actually running the communications for 
for uh, Jubilee. And um, Jubilee, which is one of the parties in the election. So um, there was a lot of, like, if you look at the, the sort of fake news and, and uh, misinformation and so on, that was a negative campaigning that was coming from Kenya, it was very professionally done. Like, really nice, interesting videos, really nice, interesting memes. And um, the thing is that these were now sent to, um, to WhatsApp groups, and, and they spread on and on and on. And um, I would say that they really understood the, the landscape in that um, they tried to make it as easy as possible, as juicy as possible, really easy to, to consume even for the semi-literate. Um, fortunately, we also have uh, a good number of um, woke people in the society who called them out. and. Uh, as much as uh, these things were shared in closed groups, what you'd almost call like, you know, the, the underweb in WhatsApp, which is closed. Like there was an army of people who were also calling them out and bringing them to the open web and sharing them on the open web and, and you know, um, fact checking whatever they were trying to, whatever they were trying to message they were trying to, to put across. So later on, um, um, it is said, it is reported that uh, Cambridge Analytica left and that they are not going to be um, carrying out the communications for Jubilee between now and October 26th. Um, on the other hand, we have uh, uh, Facebook and who owns WhatsApp, and then we also have Google, which is also like a big company in, in Kenya. Um, I mean, uh, Facebook was, was very key for campaigning I'm sure 80, if not 100% of the candidates uh, in this election used uh, Facebook in a way, in one way or another, for for political engagement uh, during the period. In fact, there were candidates who did not use any of the traditional methods of billboards and whatever, but relied um, exclusively on, on on Facebook. So, um, on one hand, they made a lot of um, inroads with political advertising. On the other hand, uh, they tried to do their part in um, being responsive to, to fake news, uh, disinformation. Uh, at one point, they ran a whole ad in the local dailies trying to tell, to educate people on how to, uh, to tell fake news from, from real news. Um, like Facebook ran? Yes, Facebook ran a full page ad, which is a. Uh, yeah, okay. they did. Yeah. In, in, a, yes. in a paper newspaper? Yes. Okay. Trying yeah. to, to, to tell people how to. Well, because um, these are the dynamics again. Like the fake news will uh, travel through the closed WhatsApp groups. And so they were trying to. Uh, uh, in one, in their own little way, contribute to, you know, um, making a better, safer web for, and and they've really also been um, uh, cooperating with the government in this, uh, in policing, the internet, and you know, um, going around uh, trying to get people to report more so that this all these uh, posts can be pulled down, and. Um, uh, 
it's it's really interesting because um, it has th this this um, response of theirs has not totally been contextualized to the situation, and uh, so they also, in my view, still have a lot to learn about the the local landscape. Yeah. Um, well, I think we should open it up because it sounds like there's a lot of curiosity and they're just okay. <laughs> Great. Um, let's, we'll go in a U shape. So Yasu, our friend here, Kate. Yeah. Okay. Oh, and you. And then you. Okay. So we, uh, I am from Brazil, as you know, so we use a lot of WhatsApp uh, communication also for elections. And uh, we recently had a case of one journalist that infiltrated in a group on WhatsApp. It's like a big thing in Brazil everyone is talking about. And I want to know from you two things. <laughs> uh, do you, did you, do you, did you guys had similar cases like journalists in groups, WhatsApp groups of the parties? And second, do you think that this helps? Like law enforcement or journalists entering in, in WhatsApps as spies to observe mm -hmm. the communication. You think that this helps as, uh, besides all the implications of it? Do you want me to take a couple or do you want me to answer as we go? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, um, so but maybe I'll I'll keep you on. I'll, okay, I'll go like okay. that if I think. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, like I told you, between 2013 and 2017, we were in campaign mode. Um, the there's an interesting uh, uh, group of people called the 36 bloggers, which is uh, uh, like these people who campaign for the ruling coalition. And um, there's also a, a state-funded office called the Presid Presidential PCSU, Strategic Communications Unit, which has uh, directors whose work seems to be to combat people uh, online uh, every minute. And, uh, you know, they go head-to-head -head with the opposition, and this is how we've kept ourselves in um, campaign mode. Uh, for four years and um, we also have uh, uh, like people under the 36 bloggers who um, come and try to change the conversation in, in, in WhatsApp groups, mm -hmm. in huge WhatsApp groups and in huge uh, Telegram groups, especially the ones um, uh, at critical times, just like just before nomination, like um, if, 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 if there's going to be a bad story about uh, a candidate just before nomination, like, you can be sure it will break on a WhatsApp group. Hmm. So, How uh, big are some of those groups? Um, we, like, I'm in a group called Ongata uh, Rongai uh, uh, and Kiserian Residents Association. I think we are close to, we are definitely over 250. We had to move to the to the WhatsApp link kind of thing and move a few people to Telegram because we are close to maybe seven or 800 uh, by now. And of course, every politician would have an interest in being in the group and trying to influence, sure. yeah. So and the yes. ability to maintain trust in that too. 
Yes. After a certain number of people, it becomes yes um, more porous, I think. Yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you think that this helps? Good for elections? Um, uh, I, I think it has both like positive and, and negative. Um, positive because if you want to pass uh, a true message, then it will be um, uh, easy to pass this message because there's more trust. Negative because if you're passing a false message, again, this message will be uh, trusted as false as it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thanks. Hi, Chris. Thank you for that wonderful talk. Um, I just want to talk about your the title of this talk, which is uh, Did Fake News Save Kenya, Kenya from an Internet Shutdown? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I want to <laughs> just speak a little yeah, bit um, more explicitly on that, on what your thoughts are around that. And secondly, just related to that, um, over the past year or so, um, maybe 10 or so African countries have had elections. Many of them have shut down the Internet during election time. And just to make that link between why it happened in other African countries and it didn't happen in Kenya. Okay. Um, sorry, I was rushing through the background, but um, I, I, I believe uh, fake news saved us from an internet shutdown. Why? Uh, because uh, all indications were that there would be some form of a shutdown in Kenya. And um, authorities had been um, giving this indication and giving warnings that if Kenyans continued to engage, and, and, and if Kenyans continued to engage the way they were engaging, which is, you know, a lot of uh, hate speech, a lot of, uh, I mean, what we call hate speech, uh, a lot of um, this kind of uh, negative content, then um, they would shut down the internet. And of course, this content kept uh, growing as we headed towards uh, elections. But I think at the same time, the government or, or the political party Jubilee really benefited uh, from, um, from this uh, harmful content. And they were able to uh, get a lot of people uh, to mobilize a lot of people to come out and vote. From my own experience um, and my circle of uh, friends, I, I know a lot of people who had uh, given up on elections and voting, and they were like, it doesn't make a difference anyway. Um, so maybe I should also explain that I am mostly Kikuyu, so most of my family is Kikuyu, and Kikuyu's. Uh, generally belong to uh, the Jubilee Coalition, while Luz and others belong to the NASA Coalition. So a lot of Kikuyus, while they, they felt that uh, there was a, a lot of corruption and so many things going wrong with the country, still wouldn't have the courage to vote for an kikuyu And so I think fake news and uh, towards the end, like there was such a huge spike in this kind of fake news. I think it helps to push more people to go out and vote, especially those uh, uh, Kikuyus and Kalenjins and other affiliated with Jubilee people who would otherwise uh, not have voted. Stayed home. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Who was next? Was it Kate or was it somebody in between? Was that? No. I think it was Kate. I don't know. Um, thank you for, for that. Um, 
as so my question is related to the role of social media companies and their policies and the the, the regulation question because um, as you know this is something I work on and so I've just from your experience and from the experience of, of what you've outlined in Kenya the, if you were advising the companies as to what their role should or could be in this space um, and what you think if you think there's other kinds of regulatory responses or again a role that the company should be playing in this space around the flow of um, what um, would you what do you think there, there are many things that could be done by um, by these platforms um, including what they're doing education and everything but I think uh, more importantly um, they are not um, understanding that the problem is uh, why are elections such a high-stakes game in Africa. And so because all this uh, fake news and disinformation is because people really want to win elections and uh, it's, a it's, it's a life and death situation. And I, I think in the case of Kenya, we need to, um, I, it would be interesting to, to try another way and, for example, uh, try and understand these people who spread uh, uh, this kind of... Uh, so-called harmful content, why are they spreading it? What do they really want to talk about? Is there a place where um, uh, we can sit down and, and, and understand um, what their issues are and try and find maybe other ways of uh, solving their issues? Because um, in a way, I think um, this whole fake news is also helping us to tackle issues of truth, justice, and reconciliation that the informal, the formal processes have been unable to tackle. And this is something we're supposed to be doing in reforming our country, but um, we, 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 we have not been able to. I think uh, in a weird uh, uh, reverse psychology kind of way, fake news is helping us talk about some of these mm. issues. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Uh, thank you for your presentation. Um, I'll make a comment on the Kenyan situation as far as fake news is concerned, and also the internet as it is. We all agree, even in America, that we are in a transition as far as globalization and the people-to-people -people direct information uh, uh, contacts. You don't need the media, you don't need the Boston Globe or any other news outlet today to get to the next person online. And that's one of the weaknesses or a transitional weakness I observed in the Kenyan elections that people are rad being randomized as it is through the internet. And it's a very young nation. Kenya is only about 55 years around that. As a nation of people with excess differences, just like in America, and those differences are being propagated in the internet, as it is even here. And my biggest quarrel on technology, as far as the elections 
are concerned in Kenya was that um, the technology society that was supporting the elections was not uh, clearly involved and it came out late. When the elections results came out, it's the politicians who are specifying what was wrong in the technical areas in the elections. And I looked at it and I said, he's a lawyer, he has no technology background, he's a politician, he has no technology background, but he is talking of technical details in the server technology. And I thought that was really embarrassing even for the opposition to come out at the beginning at the talk of algorithm. Things that didn't have any, even the technical verbal communication to talk about. And as far as the preparation on the process, the procedures on the transmission, I thought both the opposition and the the political leading party, they should have come up and agreed on the inefficiencies in technology, which we know even here we cannot afford to be transmitting every bit of vote everywhere at the same time. And there is also these population pockets. Some areas have very big populations and they at the local level, there are manual and electronic systems. Cambridge City, I'm very informed sometimes in the election, observing just from out of my own curiosity, when we vote here, it takes a minimum of about a week and a half sometimes before we get our results. And if you go to the voting room there, sometimes it's very manual. And the Kenyans have this utopia of feeling up, they, they want to be up there like America when they don't even have the actual resources at the grassroots. And that's why they run to cry to the Western world, uh, our elections are rigged, we have made, <laughs> the president has done this, the opposition has done this but they don't seem to be grounded. They don't want to move at their own pace technically and constitutionally. And then there's the other issue of not respecting the law. And we know even here, data breach has become the daily <laughs> news everywhere. And data breach, to me, is an outcome of an ethical, IT professional behavior. And until we can enforce some ethics in IT, which I doubt, when I talk to my <coughs> colleagues in IT, they say it's too late. I don't care if my data is transparent. There's no, no, no privacy anymore. And uh, so till Kenya is able to, first of all, get the right team, competent, credible IT people if you are going to use the elections technically. And then there is the enforcement of the Constitution. This, when you talked, you brought out the, the uh, 
people, the two leading people, the president and yeah. his deputy, they were in like, they were in the Hague, the case that was there. But you did not bring the other side, the opposition, Odiga himself. He was also in the 1982 mutiny and he admitted. So there is no ethics as far as the first of all the clearance of the presidential candidates secondary the preparation of even the, the high court judges technically i don't consider I, them very competent i would yeah i would i would i would agree with you that <laughs> yeah. there are a lot of like there are a lot of problems with politics in kenya also but i would also yeah i would also say that this is now the process Mm -hmm. And what we're observing is the process of a country trying to get itself uh, to reform. Um, I'm sorry we didn't go through like everything in our uh, constitutional journey, mm -hmm. but these are some of the um, constitutional contests and uh, people trying to uh, people trying to move themselves uh, from one era to. Yes. another era, and James is just burning to, I don't know whether we And uh, Can I conclude? <coughs> My issue is um, this, this excitement in adopting technology and Kenyans, if you look at Kenyans, it's not just politics, they are excessively competitive. Look at even the transport industry, anything. And the government comes in, it's, it's too unprepared to deal with all sectors of Kenyans, the average Kenyan competitiveness, which means they need you as one of the prayers in the observation. I believe you need to move okay. your group slowly in reflecting and preparing in the observation side as far as well as the advisory side and bring in more technical people if you are going to use technical I'm sorry. So we, I know I talk too much. We want to get. There's yes. a few other questions. Yeah. James, is yours pertinent to this, yeah. or should I come back? Because we've got a couple more let's, in the queue. Let's come back. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Grace. Um, you'd mentioned that there are an army of people who are taking fake news from closed groups to open groups and correcting them. Is there any evidence that they are motivated by correcting truths, or are they partisan? people trying to just correct the false information about themselves, or are they indeed editorially uh, independent? Um, so who are they, I guess, is a simple question. And a follow-up to that is, I'm glad that you said that fake news is at least helping to have a conversation, and because that's been our experience at the BBC, where we try to be aware of what the fake news is, and then and then correct it on you know, tr trusted broadcast um, outputs. Um, so I'm quite interested in how social media interacts with traditional media and broadcasters and, and the role of using that to, using traditional and trusted media to um, get a gauge of what people are talking about and keep current and then correct fake news as well. Um, <laughs> I. I don't know how much, um, there's a community on Twitter called Kenyans on Twitter, K-O-T. Mm -hmm. Yes, And um, like the discussions there are colorful and vibrant and um, it's always uh, interesting to see the trends and how they move. Um, I think it would be interesting for somebody 
an outsider to look at uh, the community, Kenyans in, on Twitter, because sometimes um, um, sometimes people have uh, impartiality, sometimes they are partial. Uh, a lot of um, uh, these people in this so-called army of uh, who call out uh, fake news may seem aligned to uh, one uh, one side. <coughs> so it would be interesting to see this uh, from an outsider's perspective because um, uh, in, in Kenya, it's, you're either or, and sometimes it's re really, really difficult to get uh, uh, people who are, uh, in, it's really hard to explain in impartiality as far as politics is concerned in Kenya. Some of my questions were were asked and answered, but I'm going to let's uh, keep it to one at each. This point, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, just one. Did you, you said fake news was a positive influence, which sounds paradoxical to people here? But was fake news equally on one side and on the other, so that it all canceled out and just just caused more people to turn out? Um, there's a little um, study that was done by a group called Portland Communications. And they seemed to find that there was more um, uh, jubilee leaning or fake news that would benefit um, that side of the coalition. Is that the incumbent side or the challenging That's side? That's the incumbent side. Okay. So um, um, it's also something that still needs uh, more study to establish um, who benefited and so on and so forth. And it's hard to put a direct link there, especially with WhatsApp, because you don't, all of the circulation of news in a WhatsApp group, you can't really track. Because that's the nature, <laughs> well, that's the nature of the technology, is that it's not something that an outside group could study. Is it like next door, so it's sort of closed, they have closed to only people who live in certain places? No. It's to a user group. It's encrypted, so yeah. it's just a private group, yeah. basically. Um, okay, we'll go to James, and then to you, and then to Casey. Yeah, I was just want to piggyback on the initial point. A, on the technology side, Kenya has, and all of these African countries have phenomenally trained techies. And let's not forget, the only reason we end up having this problem of information of uh, mainframes being hacked is because the lead tech guy with the election board is killed, and his hand is chopped off, right? So it's not an issue of not having enough qualified people. It's you could be as qualified as you want, but you could also get killed, right? And I don't need somebody working from Google to tell me the mainframe has been hacked. I need somebody working from Google to tell the guy that's running that here's a problem, and this is how this is a problem. I need to make sure that whoever is running has enough qualified people that will give him wise counsel, right? And I feel as though sometimes we have these conversations, and we talk about African countries as though these African countries are out there in the desert and we don't know what we're doing. Now, we do know what we're doing. We've been pushing for this for a very long time. And this was a way to make sure that our systems worked the way they should have worked because we know that the paper ballots had issues, right? So this was a safety mechanism and they figured out a way around the safety mechanism. So we learn and next time we try something else. So you have two or three people who have access to the mainframe instead of just one person. Right? And we need to be cognizant of these things. And whether we follow the constitution or not, we have a new constitution and we deal with it. We have people that were voted in while they were under indictment at the ICC. So whatever anybody tells me, 
there was a charge and the prosecution was about to start at the ICC. I don't care what the other person did in the 1980s because he's not being tried at the moment. And that has nothing to do with the hacking of the mainframe, right? If, the, if, if one party can say, we cannot access our mainframes because they're in France and they're asleep, why just slap somebody? Because that's just ridiculous. That's not how technology works, right? But when we talk of fake news, when we talk of technology in African countries, it is not a capacity issue. That is not our problem. We have the capacity. We have the qualified people. It's the fact that we haven't created the space. So that part of the political conversation has not matured as fast as the Constitution has matured. And up until we get that, we have this lopsided approach. And we just have to be honest, be honest about it. Instead of, I'm sorry. I, I get frustrated when people talk about capacity and African countries because I've had those arguments. I've had those arguments with journalists as well. And you sit there and you go, our journalists do phenomenal work. Now, that's a different conversation with how the laws work. And we need to figure out a way to harmonize them. <coughs> so I, I have to respond to that. We have phenomenal people. And I know these phenomenal people. And they work for Google. They work for Facebook. They work for... We have Chris, who's here, who does phenomenal data work. And she's a journalist. And, 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 and these people sometimes risk their lives to do this job. And we have to be cognizant of that. And we have to stop disrespecting these folks by saying we don't have qualified people. I mean, I'm sorry, I had to push back on that. <laughs> go ahead. Right. Oh my god. So, um, right, so uh, we have a meeting afterwards where we can kill each other's, you know, scream and shout. I want to uh, I I take a different kind of um, futuristic perspective and ask about this phenomenon of fake news. We're talking about that as something that's sort of a recent phenomenon that is, and that has occurred sort of in the, in the US and in Britain and elections and stuff. So I want to just turn this around and say, people, if you have ever been in Africa before an election, at least in East Africa, I think, I've been in Uganda a few times, and that was, some of it was before social media, fake news is a political mechanism and a strategy that has been deployed with elegance and ease by politicians throughout the continent in and the beautiful world, ways. I think it's yes. fair to say. Yeah, yeah. the world. It's, yes. it's not, but, but it certainly but works. So I, I wanted to ask you uh, to sort of maybe relate uh, a bit more to sort of uh, fake news and elections or political rumor before and after social media in Kenya, has it changed? Is it different? Is it the, are the dynamics, is, it, is, is there anything new about this, really? I think one uh, big difference is that everyone has an equal chance to also create their own propaganda and disseminate it. Because the, the internet is not as regulated as, as uh, as other media, and so in the past, in, in our past reforms, we would talk about giving fair coverage to all sides of the divide. Now, um, it's the media who are trying to run after the politicians because the politicians no longer need them as much. If they create enough, um, enough momentum on social media, then um, they get covered. So one, one big difference would be that in the past, government had uh, more leverage and, and uh, a bigger advantage in 
spreading their own uh, propaganda. But now everybody has uh, uh, the same uh, kind of uh, chance. So it depends on your creativity, <coughs> creativity and how good your content is um, so that it, it can be consumable to the, to the people. I think there are many, many other uh, differences, but uh, that's the big one. So am I correct in, in assuming that your assertion is that uh, the amount of fake news around the election caused people to, it, it increased the turnout for the election. And if that's true, I don't entirely understand why that precluded an internet shutdown. Like a government could shut down the internet for any reason. I just don't, I mean, is it because the, the, the political cost of doing that increased by the amount of turnout that there was going to be? Is that, is that? So that's, that's, that's one way to look at it, that um, there was need to uh, keep on uh, giving these messages that would encourage people to go out and vote. And then um, there, there may be other reasons why the internet was not shut down, among them being that the internet was uh, required to um, transmit results. Um, that's one. And um, another reason could also be the cost, the political cost of um, shutting down the internet, since it became such a big, um, uh, it became big vibes on, on KOT and uh, Kenyans on Twitter and online. So it became a big topic. And um, so um, if, if I was like a, a big official uh, sitting in my big swinging chair and want to consider um, what would be the cost politically of uh, shutting down the internet. And then one other reason I think is because we are all aware that the ICC has got eyes on us and nobody really wants to be, um, to go through the ICC process or to be indicted for anything um, under the ICC process. So I, I think there, is, uh, there are many reasons, but um, I say fake news is uh, one of them. Do you mind if I chip in something? Yeah, sure. In, in this case, but I think in others, there seems to be, there are governments that are thinking a lot more strategically about how to use the internet and social media networks to their benefit. And so, and political parties too. And so I think that the interests in shutting things down in some places, like that cost benefit, it just tends to weigh a little bit heavier towards, oh, if we keep things open, we can keep pushing whatever information at people and keep watching the way they're behaving. And that would be nice. That's a super cynical view. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, I don't, what's our time situation? Maybe a couple more, like one last question. Couple, yeah, one or two more questions, succinctly put. Okay. Um, ask question. Okay. Um, <clears throat> why are elections in Africa, Kenyan specific, why are they a life or death issue? Um, many reasons, but bottom line, I think, is that elections determine your leaders and your leaders have such a big role to play in access to opportunities, economic opportunities, social opportunities. So um, over the years, people have um, taken a lot of interest in uh, who they vote uh, with the hope that this person will be able to deliver uh, some economic opportunities. 
that is not always true. I mean, um, people are still suffering, including people whose uh, tribes people are running the government. So um, that is, uh, I don't know, there's still like there's like a myriad of issues and why we needed a new constitution in Kenya and to reorganize ourselves is that like since um, the British went back to London, we've had um, so many issues that we like to call historical injustices that have led to uh, some people being um, marginalized while others uh, really um, got a better quality of life. And so um, it's interesting that for a long time, ethnic mobilization was a thing that if we get our person, then um, then we get access to resources. But in this election, we've seen a lot more of um, people who are just concerned about um, issues and how, if we get you as our leader, how you'd be able to um, give us uh, a better access to a better quality of life. So. Um, this is a big tension, and I think uh, people will die fighting uh, before this can become the norm in Africa because it's so much more easier to tell people, come and vote for me because I'm, I'm your tribesman. Mm -hmm. yeah. May I make a comment on this question? I think when people have been very oppressed, when they get freedom, they rush for it. And before like Kenya in the 80s, most Kenyans never used to vote. But after the 90s, when dictatorship eased off, I'm not saying it's over, completely over. And like many African countries, when the freedom of speech uh, was uh, opened up slowly, we saw a lot of people being passionate about democracy and voting and that's what you see everywhere where people have been very suffocated once that opening comes up they think it is time to take our lives back and I believe that's why during elections people want to exercise that freedom but at the same time, we have a problem in Africa with the elitist. We exploit the innocent, the naive, and we, we misuse our historical injustices. Kenya has had the best, the most educated parliament, the last two or three groups but it has been the most conflicting, the most inciting lot. And you may perhaps have to look at the history. Why is it we have the elitist leading in these uh, excesses during elections? That's my challenge. Mm. OK, well, do you have a final remark? I just hope you get, uh, people take more interest in, um, in what is happening um, in Kenya and Africa at large. I, I hope you take more interest uh, in our upcoming um, elections on, on 26th. Uh, also more interest in how uh, humans of Africa are interacting <coughs> with uh, technology 
and um, we, we, we have a lot of lessons that we could learn for the future generations and um, I think life is changing. We, we don't have to kill each other in order to access opportunities. Like technology gives us so much more access. Um, uh, we don't have to be divided in order to uh, move to you know, the new world that's out there for us. Thank you so much for all your support. They don't do it that way anymore.